0: Let's look at chapter 9 tonight. Last week we looked at Solomon finally building the temple. It took seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build Solomon's palace and all of his other uh, building projects there in Jerusalem. And uh, and Solomon finally, he brings up the ark uh, from the tabernacle in Mount Zion, which is just uh, south of the Temple Mount, the way it is today. And David, remember, had erected a, a new tabernacle for the Ark of the Covenant. And he had it there until Solomon's temple was built. And of course, David passes from the scene and now his son builds the temple. He brings the Ark uh, from Zion, which is just a little bit south of the Temple Mount, brings it out, installs it into the new temple and they have a, a big ceremony. Solomon gives a prayer of dedication. He gives a speech to the people. And uh, Solomon blesses the assembly, and finally he dedicates the temple with many sacrifices. And I, and I think uh, the number was really something. It was something like 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep that he used to dedicate and to worship in, in sort of like a, a, a ribbon-breaking ceremony for the temple. And they did that, uh, as an, uh, obviously as an act of worship, on the Feast of Tabernacles which is ironic as well. And so now we get to uh, chapter 9. And if I had to put a title on this evening's message, it would be accountability. Accountability. Let's just look at the first uh, nine verses of chapter 9 here. It says and it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do that the Lord appeared that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time and he as he appeared to him at Gibeon and the Lord said to him I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me and I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually now if And you know where I'm going to go with this. So you might as well start circling these descriptors. If, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I command you, and if you keep my commandments and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if, there it is again, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Notice all peoples, not just the Jews. And as far as this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will answer. Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought on them all this calamity. All this calamity. And so uh, an interesting thing, but uh, I think of accountability when I read those those first nine verses. And uh, accountability is something that is very important in cultures and in every facet of society, whether it's in the home, in the schools, in the governments, colleges, wherever you're at, accountability is a very good thing. And it's basically, the definition of it is the quality or state of being accountable, especially an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility and to account for one's actions. And I'd like to add something to that. And it's usually uh, you're accountable because of something that you have heard, something that was spoken to you, something that was given to you, and as a result of that, now you are accountable to keep it and to be held accountable to that standard, to that statute, to that law, to that idea, whatever it is. Does that make sense? And that's something that is so important for us today because one of the highlights of this chapter is God making Solomon accountable for what he had heard, not only from his father David, but uh, from the Lord on a number of occasions? And um, these scriptures, uh, we're not going to go through each of them individually, but you might want to write them down. Um, they'll be up on the on the on the website along with the podcast and all that later. But one thing, if we look at First Kings chapter two, God. Uh, you know David, or excuse me, David is speaking to Solomon in the second chapter of this book right before he dies, and he basically tells him all that the Lord had told him, remember the Davidic covenant that God had given to David, saying that uh, someone from his seed, from his own Uh, body would would ultimately sit on the throne of of David, of his his kingdom, and his kingdom would endure forever, but there was also a condition that if they fail, then their their reign will be basically cut off for a season, but it would ultimately endure, and we know that that is true because Jesus Christ, when he returns in his second coming, he will be the rightful king as we've been looking at in Matthew, he will be the rightful king and is the rightful king. To set on the throne of David, his father, right, and so, so in First Kings chapter two, David uh, speaks to Solomon all this, and then in the third chapter, uh, the Lord speaks to Solomon in a dream by night, and basically reiter- reiterates the same thing he reiterates the same thing. He reminds him of what God, God reminds Solomon what God told to David, and now he's rehearsing that before Solomon. And then in the sixth chapter, God speaks to Solomon again. And then in the eighth chapter, Solomon brings to remembrance as he's dedicating the temple what God had spoken to David and also the responsibility that Solomon had as the king of Israel to perpetuate that that rule and also to continue to be obedient to God. And so now he's, now the whole nation hears this at the dedication of the temple. He he basically says, you know, these things are happening, and this is what my father David told me, that God had told him, and that there would be not fail a man to sit on the throne, but we have but I have to, Solomon would say, I need to continue to abide by God's statutes and his laws. And then finally in this chapter that we're looking at tonight, the first nine verses that we just read, the Lord appearing to Solomon again, rehearsing the same thing again. See, God holds us accountable for what we have heard and what we know. He does. He holds us accountable. In fact, in, in James, it says, therefore, let him who knows to do good and uh, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin, there's an accountability baked, baked into that. Because if I know to do good, I've been equipped with the knowledge, but then I don't do it, I'm accountable to that knowledge. And to me, then, it's sin because I don't do what I know I should do. It's like running a red light. I know it's not good. Why? Because they tell you in, in driver's training school that you can't run a red light. You're supposed to stop. You're not supposed to you know, fly by. And so I'm accountable. And, so, and also in Second Peter Peter, speaking of false teachers, he says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for that man than the beginning. And notice verse 21, It would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So the idea is that when you are made aware of something, you are accountable. And finally in Luke, Jesus said this, to his disciples. The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant when his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and be drunk, and the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew, and here it is, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to him who has much has been committed of him, they will also ask the more. We all understand this. This It's just part and parcel of life. We are held accountable for our, our actions And the truth of the matter is, is that in our lives we need to be accountable to a number of people. We need to be accountable to our spouses if you're married. We need to be accountable to our employers. We need to be uh, accountable to the local and federal governments around us and our friends and family. We are accountable to all these people. And guess what? They are also accountable to us as well. Or they ought to. Even local and federal governments, they're accountable by their constituents who have select, who, who've elected them to represent them, right? So they're accountable to us, not the other way around. But we are accountable to them, but they are also accountable to us, right? And God holds every soul accountable. So as we look at verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do. The, the word there for LORD, you'll notice, is in all caps. And you probably know this already, but whenever you see LORD in all capital letters, that means that the Hebrew underlying that, always, usually in the, in the King James, and the New King James, it means Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? And Yahweh, and you'll see that also in verse 2 and verse 3 as well, and Jehovah or Yahweh is the one who keeps covenant with his servants, He is the one who keeps covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And he's also, uh, and he will not break his end of the deal. He cannot break his end of the deal. He is always faithful. He is always the covenant keeper. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will also will, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That's who our God is. He's, he's almighty Jehovah God. He is the covenant keeper. And he can keep his promises. I very rarely keep my promises And I I hopefully I'm getting better as time goes on. I I try not to make promises, but when I do, I usually fail, but God is always faithful. So notice in verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon, and notice that the second time that God is speaking to Solomon, which we've already read, that is reminding him of the necessity to continue to follow his statutes and walk with the Lord. He's reminding him, and it's very evident that God is very much aware of what Solomon is capable of doing. He's aware of what Solomon is going to do yet in the future, and at this time, Solomon has no clue. His heart is is right. His heart is wanting to do the right thing. It is, and at this time, it was certainly the farthest thing from Solomon's mind as he's dedicating the temple. It's the last thing from his mind is to do something against the Lord, Because this time that we're looking at right now is a time of great celebration. They just cut the ribbon, so to speak, and now the the sacrifices are happening. The temple is, is in full swing, and there's a great joy. There's a great release, if you will, and it's a great and joyful time. The last thing Solomon is thinking of is disobeying the Lord. And the first time that he appeared to the Lord, we know, was in 1 Kings chapter 3. Let me just read it to you. You can make a note in your Bible right here next to this, but 1 Kings chapter 3 verses 4 through 14 because this is what again what God had spoken to him. Now the king went to Gibeon, and this is right after Solomon had become king, very early in his reign. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was where the great high place was. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar at Gibeon, and notice the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and says, he says, what shall I give you? So the same covenant-keeping God that met with Abraham, Moses, and David is now meeting with Solomon. And Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant because... Uh, of David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him. You've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of David, my father, but I'm a little child. I don't know how to come out or go in. And basically, he in, in, in this passage, Solomon just says, you know, I just need to have wisdom. I need wisdom. I, I need the things that I I, I can't learn, I don't know how to go out, I don't know how to come out, how do I rule and judge these people of yours, for they are great? And basically, to summarize it, God says, you know, Solomon, I'm really pleased with your answer. And of course, God knew what he would answer. He says, not only am I going to make you wise and give you great discernment and judgment, But I'm going to give you the things that you didn't ask for as well. I'm going to give you riches beyond your wildest dreams. And you're going to be the wisest man. There's going to be no one like you from before you or after you, with the exception of Jesus, of course. And so God does it. But at the very last verse, in verse 14, it says, So, after all of that, he says, So, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Pretty interesting. Solomon's very accountable now. He's been told over at least five times, and there's quite a few times, the same thing has been coming up. And see, God wants to make you and I accountable. And we are accountable. You and I have been given much. We have been given very much. I think of myself just having sat under Pastor Jeff for, you know, 23 years and, and had the, the blessing of being here whenever the doors were opened, being in here. And the Lord has given me much. He's given you much. He's entrusted to us great wealth of knowledge. But we, obviously we can't just let it be knowledge in our head. It has to get into our heart. It has to change us. And the funny thing about life and about our own selves is that we have the tendency... We can, if we so choose, to let it all be up here and not so much in here. And that's a dangerous place when we are you know, allowing it to be up here and we know we can spout all the scriptures, but we haven't let it really affect our hearts. And so we are accountable to God for the great wealth that he has given to us. And I say that to just to encourage you and just to remind you as well, because we have been given a great deal. Now notice in verse 3 there, it says, God says that you've built this house and you, to put my name there forever. Now God did put his uh, name there forever, and he even shaped the topography of the temple mount, the very land that the temple is on, according to his name. <laughs> according to his name. In the Hebrew alphabet, there is a letter, it looks like a W, and it's called a shin. And the Shin is, uh, the Hebrew letter Shin stands for Shaddai, which means God. So the letter looks like a W, is the letter Shin, and it literally, in the Hebrew, it stands for Shaddai, which is another name for God. And the reason why that's such a big deal, that there's the, the, the letter you can see. But then if you look at the topography of Israel, it's quite amazing because you've got on the Eastern side, on the right side, you've got the, the Kidron Valley, and then you've got the Temple Mount uh, right to the west of that. And then to the west of that, you've got the Tyropian Valley, which is uh, uh, to the east of that, or west of that, excuse me. And then further west, you've got the Hinnom Valley that circles all the way down Mount, underneath Mount Zion. And so this, this Hebrew letter that stands for Shaddai, or God, the very topography of the land, He's got his name emblazoned on Jerusalem. And you'll see in many places where he says, A place where I choose to place my name there. And this could be what he meant. I don't know. But it's pretty interesting, I think, to consider that Shaddai is the exact letter of the Hebrew alphabet that's, that, that forms the, um, the topography around Jerusalem. Pretty interesting. Now, notice in verse 3 So the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer, Solomon, and your supplication that you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, one of the things, again, you might want to write in your Bible is the parallel passage for this chapter in chapter 9. Uh, and those parallel passages are Second Chronicles chapter seven, verses twelve through twenty-two. Second Chronicles chapter seven, twelve through twenty-two, and then all of chapter eight of Second Chronicles. That is going to be the parallel passages to what we're going to read now. and you can read, I'll highlight a few differences as we go along. But one thing that's interesting here, if you compare Second Chronicles chapter 7, 12 through 22, the parallel passage, uh, um, the Lord begins with what we see here in verse three. And then he adds this very important conditional promise, one that we have known, one that we know and we've heard a lot. it's, it's this one. 2 Chronicles 7.14, it's one that we've been talking a lot about, we've been quoting it. You won't find it here in chapter 9 of 1 Kings, but it was meant to be there because it was the same time frame. For whatever reason, the, the chronicler decided not to include this here, but that's what happened right after this. It says, if my people who are called by my name, God says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Again, another conditional promise. If they do this, then I will do this. And again, you know this because I like to bring this out because there are some promises that are unconditional that God makes. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might also be, that's an unconditional promise. There's nothing we have to do to make that happen. It's going to happen. God made a bunch of those unconditional promises, but there are some things where he says, now you've got a responsibility. You're accountable to what I've shown you. Now what are you going to do about it? So if you do this, then I will do this. And while this promise was given to Israel initially, The principle, I believe, also applies to us in the church as well. And I say that because the Lord calls us to humble ourselves, doesn't he? In James 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And he also... Uh, As Gentiles, as the church, we need to pray and seek his face. That's true as well for us as well. When Jesus in Matthew 6 says, When you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners that everybody can see them. And in verse 6 he says, But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. In other words, seek his face. Aren't we to do that? Aren't we to humble ourselves and seek his face? And then turn from your wicked ways. What is that other than repentance? Are we, called to be, are we called to repentance? Of course we are. Jesus said so in Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that, this applies to us as well. The principle applies to us. And then if, if we do those things, and we can't do them of our own flesh, we have to do this, you know, the Spirit of God works in you. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, because in and of myself, I have no desire, and neither do you, by the way, to do these things that, God, that would please God. The Bible says there's none that pleases God. There's none that even care about God. The mystery is that he comes down and takes up residence in our heart, and all of a sudden he changes our life. But prior to his spirit indwelling in me, I was a scoundrel. I didn't care about God. I could care less. I was happy to do every desire of my own flesh. But that's the truth, isn't it? And notice, then God will do these things. He will hear from heaven when we pray He's certainly listening, otherwise we're praying in vain, right? So he he will definitely hear from heaven, and he he will forgive their sin. He will forgive our sin. Isn't that true of 1 John 1, verse 9? He'll forgive us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then to heal their land. If our land needs to be healed and we, we say, God... Help us. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to pray and seek your face, to turn from our wicked ways. God is going to hear from heaven, and he's going to forgive our sin, and he's going to heal our land. I believe that it's not too late, although we're getting very close. It is not too late, but notice. Lord says, I've heard your prayer, still in verse 3 here. And I've consecrated this house. The idea is I've set it apart. I've sanctified it. I've set it apart. I've hallowed it. And, um, and, and you know, when you think about this, to being being set apart, you know, you and I need to be set apart too. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Paul says, do you not know that you're the temple and the spirit of God, uh, the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If this is the case, then that we also need to be consecrated, right? We need to be set apart just as the temple was set apart, it was consecrated. You and I, now the temple of the Holy Spirit, we ought to consecrate and set ourselves apart from the world, from the world and unto Jesus. That's always the way it is. He doesn't just tell us to come away from it and then you're just kind of in this void at vacuum. No, we, we, we set ourselves apart from those things and then we go to him. We go to him. Notice verse 4, for if you walk, and underline that word if, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I command you, and, underline this, if you keep my commandments and my judgments. But let me ask you a question. Uh, Look at that phrase, as your father David walked. Was David a sterling example of obedience? No, he wasn't. Although David was at least guilty of adultery and murder, he confessed, didn't he? He repented of his sin. He never went back on that. Do you notice that? He never did that. And David, although forgiven, was a different man afterwards and had no confidence in himself. He also continued to suffer the consequences of his actions, even though God had forgiven him. Consequences that he and his family had suffered. And David sinned, and he made some pretty bad choices. But one thing that he wasn't guilty of was spiritual adultery or idolatry. But one thing David didn't do is worship false gods. He sinned. He made uh, some errors. He made some pretty big ones. But he confessed them. God forgave him. David's in heaven, and God's going to resurrect him and bring him back in the Millennial Kingdom to rule and reign over Jerusalem as a co-regent, evidently, with Christ. He did. He made some really bad mistakes. But spiritual adultery was not one of them. But you'll notice that after David, beginning with Solomon, and we're going to see this theme in Solomon's life begin to ramp up now as we get further into up until chapter 12, because that's when his son, when, when Solomon passes from the scene. But Solomon started off well, but he didn't finish well. But he's still in glory because he learned a major lesson. He learned a major lesson. But from, from Solomon to Rehoboam and all the way down through the Judean kings, nearly all of them, except for maybe four of them, four or five kings, actually he, a very slim number, and we'll look at that in a minute, didn't do the same thing. They were, they were good kings, but... The rest of the Judean kings were all idolatrous. All of the northern ten tribes, all of the kings in the north, every single one of them was an idolater, and it all started with Jeroboam. But David didn't have a problem with spiritual adultery and if you walk before me as your father David walked, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then verse 5, notice, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And we have looked at this verse a lot, this, this uh, passage, and we won't go over it again tonight, but I will have you write it down somewhere, and by the time we're done with Kings, you're probably going to have this verse memorized, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12-16, because that's the Davidic covenant, and uh, we've talked a lot about it because there's a lot there. But, um, but in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, David instructed Solomon again, and he says, David says to Solomon, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. Notice, to keep his statutes, his commandments. Here's the accountability all over again, his, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, notice, and that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son... If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so it's just further, further accountability. Solomon, my son, make sure you follow the Lord. I don't know of anybody in the scripture who has had this many reminders I'm sure there are other, there's, there's definitely others, but when I think of what Solomon, the, the many opportunities, and see, God doesn't waste words. When he told him and had him remember these things four or five, six times, there's a reason for that. God's trying to say, Solomon, you don't even understand yet, but you're going down this road, and I'm telling you, don't do it. Don't do it. Stay away from those things. But if your sons, verse 6, back in our text, he says, but if your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before them, but go and they serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight And Israel will be a proverb and a byword. And in verse 8, As for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss at it. And then finally in verse 9, then they will answer because they forsook the Lord God. This is why these things are going to happen because Israel had forsook Jehovah, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and they embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity upon them. And Solomon and most of the kings of Judah, like I said, and all of the kings of Israel, they would all fall into idolatry except for a handful. And in fact, uh, just only uh, the ones that are starred here were, were good kings after David. You know There was Asa, and there was Jehoshaphat, and Jotham, and certainly Josiah. These were the exemplary kings, and Josiah probably stands ahead of them all. But every one of the kings of, of Israel would fall into idolatry. And see, God would fulfill that warning and that prophecy that he gave to him. In verses 4 through 8 that we just read, because we know that he's going to take the northern kings into, into captivity by the Assyrians, and then 116 years later, in 586, he's going to burn down the temple, the Babylonians, and they're going to be taken captive to Babylon. Verse 10, now it happened at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. That Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired... And King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. Now remember, Hiram was a really good confidant and a friend of his father David. Okay, so now David passes from the scene. Hiram is still alive. Now Solomon has this wonderful friendship. He, he remembers certainly his dad talking to Hiram. They probably had lunch together, and Solomon as a young boy was probably at the table and listening to these men, now Solomon is a man, now he's having these same interactions with this man, and for whatever reason, these, this land up in the Galilee region, which is very close to Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would still be even north and west of the Galilee area, but Solomon gave him these things, but notice what it says, so uh, Hiram says, what kind of cities are these which you gave me, my brother? <laughs> And he called them the land of Kabul or Kabul, as they are this day, and it literally means good for nothing. thinks but no thanks, right? So then Hiram sent the king one hundred and twenty talents of gold, evidently as payment for this 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 land, even though it wasn't really anything that great. And we'll find out that in second chronicles chapter eight, verse two that Hiram ultimately gives those back to Solomon and says, you know what, I really don't need them. You can take them. And then Solomon builds them up and ha- inhabits them with the people of, of Israel. But notice in verse 15. So, and this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord. We looked at that a couple of chapters ago. In order to build the temple and all of those other buildings, it required a massive workforce. And so Solomon would put the, the peoples that were still in the land that the children of Israel didn't completely drive out, the Canaanites that were still in the land, he put them into uh, like a slave labor is really what it was. And so notice, and this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised, to build the house of the Lord and his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer... And burned it with fire. Had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry or as a gift to his daughter Solomon's wife. Because remember, Solomon had married the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. And kings would often do this to build alliances and assurances with each other. Because uh, the king of Egypt is not going to come against Jerusalem, knowing that his wife and, their, and her, his grandkids are there. So it kind of creates this kind of insurance, if you will, between nations and kings, and so Solomon was really big into that, and we're gonna see it's gonna get him into a lot of trouble. Uh, so Solomon built Gezer, a lower Beth horon Baalath, and Tadmor in the wilderness, and in the land of Judah, and all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry. You might want to underline that. <laughs> cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion, and here again is a harbinger. That's why I wanted you to underline it. The cities for his chariots and cavalry. This is one of the things that Solomon ought not to have done. He was not to have build to have built a cavalry, nor multiply wives. And we'll certainly get to that later. But Solomon was the first king in Israel to employ horses and chariots in fighting, in battle. He was the first one. In fact, God had told him, and I'll just read this um, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Back in the law, before the Israelites even crossed over into the promised land, what did God tell the Jews before they went over? He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it to dwell in and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you, notice, who is not your brother, but here it is. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. There's God's direct revelation of what they should and should not do. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, which is exactly what Solomon did. For the Lord has said to you, uh, you shall not return that way again, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. And how many did Solomon have? A thousand. We're going to see that coming shortly too. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now, God had given Solomon great wealth, but it wasn't to be his motivation. It wasn't to be the thing that he would greed over, right? And then a few hundred years later, Samuel, remember that day that they had taken Samuel, or not Samuel, but Saul, and they were about ready to coronate him. And Samuel was really bringing the children of Israel to task because they wanted a king like all the other nations around them. And Samuel upbraided them, remember. Excuse me, in Samuel first Samuel chapter eight, beginning in verse 10, and he said this. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his own horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. And so God here, through Samuel, is already knowing what's coming, knowing what is coming. Solomon was not to do that. And notice in verse 20, And all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who are left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to completely destroy. Remember, that was their problem. God told them to completely destroy these, these seven Canaanite peoples. And they failed to go in and do the job. They did a half-baked job. They did some of it. They didn't finish it. And as a result of that, those people with their idolatrous practices influenced the children of Israel. They began to do the very same thing. And that's why they were led into captivity, you see. And it was all because they didn't follow the very first thing. God made them accountable. He told them. Not to do it. In fact, let me just read a short one, and you've heard me say this before. Deuteronomy 7, the first 11 verses, is, is a really awesome verse, but let me just read to you this one, one that you've heard from me a number of times as we've gone through Samuel. But this was what God told them when they would go into the Promised Land. Remember, it was because of these people, the Canaanites, because of their hundreds of years of idolatry, God finally was going to judge them for that. And he was going to use his own people To do it. Notice what he said, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But of the cities, of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. You shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why? It tells us in verse 18. Lest they teach you to do according to the abominations which they have done to their other gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And do you remember this last Sunday morning when we looked at the, what they did, some of the idolatrous practice? Do you remember the the postpartum abortions that they did? They cast their sons and their daughters into the fire. They cast them into the hands of Molech, and, and they burned and incinerated their children after they were born. That's the kind of sin these pagans, these Canaanites, were doing for hundreds of years, and God said, enough's enough. Doesn't God have the right to judge when he is... No doubt these people, they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they were completely involved and engrossed in it, and God had a moment where he's like, you know what? He even told Abraham back in Genesis 15, he says, you know what? Your descendants are going to go into a land that doesn't belong to them, going to be ruled by a people for 430 years, and afterward they're going to come out, but not until then, because the iniquity of those Canaanites, the Amorites, it's not yet complete. I'm giving them a little more time. Isn't that wonderful of God? He gave them even more time. And so now they're in the in in Egypt for 400 years as slaves for the Egyptians. And God is going to do something in the people of Israel and he's also going to be working on the hearts of the people of those seven nations in the in Canaan. They didn't turn from their idolatry and so God says, "Okay, now's the time, Moses, grab the people and bring them out." And by the way, you've got some work to do in the desert, so we're going to be out here for about 40 years. But we're, when we finally go in, I need you to go in and decimate everything. Just trust me. And see, that's really hard, isn't it? But that's what God told him to do. But of the children, uh, back in verse 22 in our text tonight, it says, but of the children of Israel, Solomon made no force laborers. He made the, those people who were left in the land, they were to be the laborers because they were men of war, uh, they were the men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, his commanders of his chariots, and his cavalry. One of the neat places that we go and we go to Israel. If, if we go next year, and I hope we do, um, pray, save up your money, and come with us. But you'll see in Megiddo, in the valley of Armageddon, Har Megiddo, it's, it's, a, it's a tell. Uh, it's a, it's a you'll, you'll see where Solomon had his, Megiddo was one of his chariot cities. And you actually walk up into, into, that, into that city of Megiddo and they've uncovered most of it, a good chunk of it. And you can see the stables. And you can see the feeding troughs for the horses that Solomon had in Megiddo. You can walk right in them. <laughs> and just, I mean, just to hold your breath and say, Lord, take me back you know, several, couple thousand years ago, and you would be right there in the midst of all those horses that Solomon had. But you can see it right before you. It's amazing. And it's right there in the Valley of Armageddon, and the Israeli Air Force drops their jets right in the middle of the Valley of Esdralon, and then they just disappear underneath. they got a whole thing, a network underneath there. But I'm having a lot of fun talking about this, so we better get going. But notice verse 23, Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city to David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, and then he built the Milo. The Milo is basically a landfill. And we find out why he um, he wanted to get Pharaoh's daughter out of Zion. He wanted to get her out of that and build her her own house, which is nice because she has her own house. But here's the justification for that. And again, in Second Chronicles chapter 8, Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house which he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the place to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. <laughs> and so here's a Gentile woman living in the area where David had the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant. So Solomon had enough Reverence in his heart. He's like, you know what? I, I, I love this woman. I don't know how great his love was, but he built her a house, so praise the Lord for that. I'm sure it was very nice. Probably nicer than any of our houses. But she was a Gentile. And so... He wanted to build her her own house. Now three times a year, verse 25, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. And so he finished the temple. Three times in a year. We know that there were three feasts that the Jews would always go to, and that's the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Oftentimes you'll see the Feast of Unleavened Bread by itself, but what it, what it really means is, of course, it means the Passover. Because it's the, fa- the Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there, but, but sometimes you'll just see it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it it's really includes the Passover. Because that's what happens first the day before, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread commences on the very next day. And so the... The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the event on which the the temple was inaugurated on. But notice verse 26 now. King Solomon, he also built a fleet of ships at Ezion geber which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And if you were to look at a map of, 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 of this area, you'll notice that the Sinai Peninsula is kind of shaped like an upside-down uh, pyramid. And on the west side is the Gulf of Suez, and on the right side of that is the Gulf of Aqaba, And it's all considered the Red Sea, but they're called uh, different gulfs. And so this place, ezion is in the northern part of the Sea of Aqaba, which is uh, in the... Um, on the east side, there at the very northern tip of the the Gulf of Aqaba, and there is a couple of different locations where it could be. One is a little island on the on the east or the west coast. Excuse me, and they call that Pharaoh's Island. Uh, some. Scholars believe that that may be the place of Ezion-Geber, and others believe that it's up there uh, around Elot or Akaba or somewhere in the northern part up there is where Solomon had these ships and this kind of shipping uh, business with uh, Hiram, king of Tyre. And so uh, a pretty interesting thing. And so verse 27, Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, because the the men of Israel, they weren't seamen. They, 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 they didn't know much about the sea. They, they fished around the Galilee, but as far as the big oceans are concerned, that just wasn't their gig. <laughs> and so um, Hiram sends his men to work with Solomon, and they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, And brought it to King Solomon. Now that doesn't really mean a lot to us. But before we get to that, uh, this place called Ophir. uh, There's three different possibilities that many believe that it could be. It's 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 really unknown. But there's some general ideas about this. The first one is in the uh, in South Arabia. If you were to look at a map of Saudi Arabia, down there in the uh, uh, southwest corner, there. Uh, down there by Sheba, where the Queen of Sheba uh, will come from, and she will travel all the way up to see uh, Solomon here shortly. Or it could be the east coast of Africa, which uh, around there by Somalia and around that area of today. Or it could even be India, because as soon as you get out of the Red Sea, you can continue going east and you run right into India. And so this place called Ophir could be that. But 420 talents of gold, what does that mean? Well, I did some math. I think you'll like this. So 420 talents of gold. A talent is about 75 pounds of of metal. So 420 talents times 75, that's 31,500 pounds or 16 tons of gold. Today, as of today, gold per ounce is about $1,100 an ounce you do the math, and it comes to be about five hundred and fifty-four million four hundred thousand. And this was just one segment of it. So think of how much that would be back then, comparatively. You know, so it's it's quite a lot of money, quite a lot of money. And so as we look at this, we see Solomon gaining in and, and, and his wisdom. He's gaining in his material possessions. There's some things that we're seeing along the way. We're going, oh, Solomon, you better be careful. God has told you to not to do these things. And yet he's doing them anyway. And all the while, God is just allowing him to see for himself. And you know what's really interesting, I find? And then we'll take communion. What I think is so interesting when you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, read that, especially as we get to the end of Solomon's career in chapter 11, and then read Ecclesiastes, and you'll find that Solomon learned a great lesson. And in fact, he was allowed to do something that most people don't get to do, and that is to live the life that everybody would want to live, to have the, 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 all the wealth and all the wisdom that he had. I mean, people were freaking out when they would come and visit him Queen of Sheba was breathless, literally, when she visited him. She had all kinds of questions. She, he's just answering her questions. She's sitting there with her mouth open, and she can't believe what is happening. So he had it all, and then he starts to take a turn. He starts to allow his wives to overrule him, and to, um, he gets involved in idolatry. And then he completely engulfs himself on this other side, on the dark side, and then at the end of it all, he comes back to himself. And he's like, you know what? I've done it all. I really have done it all. I've had it all. God's great blessing, all the knowledge, the, the wisdom, the money, the fame. I had everything that the world, any, any man or woman in the world could possibly want. I've been on that side, and I've also been on the other side. And I've experienced the drunk parties, uh, all the stuff that he did. He said, I've experienced it all. And you know what he came back with? It's all Emptiness. It is all emptiness, and he comes back, and, and the wisdom of God through it all, he finally comes to himself. Praise the Lord for that. Because Solomon's in glory. God forgave him, but he went through it all. And hopefully you and I won't have to go through it all. It's one of the, one of the difficult things about being a parent, I think. You know, it would be so nice just to tell your children, let me explain to you the things that, I've, that have happened to me. And I hope you don't have to go through them. Will you just listen and just let me tell you how it's gonna probably play out? And usually it does. But young people gotta try it out for themselves and very seldomly do they listen. So anyway, but a very interesting thing, but accountability is so important and God had made him accountable and he makes us accountable too. Let's stand and let's pray. I've kept you a long time. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we just come before you tonight, Lord, and we thank you. Lord, that you've made us accountable. Lord, every time we open your word and we read, Lord Jesus, we are aware that we are made accountable to what we read. And Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would just burn those things deep in our hearts. Lord, that those things, the things that you have worked in us, Lord, would now work themselves out in very practical, very necessary, very godly ways now, Father. So have all of us, Lord, shine the searchlight of your spirit and the light of Christ all around in our hearts in every dark area. And Lord, may we be willing to give it all to you, Lord. It's that simple. Lord, be glorified in our lives tonight. Forgive us, cleanse us. Enlighten us, Lord. Lighten our load. Lord, bring victory over sin. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.